sorrowful songs. Beware of sorrowful songs. There is a page on the web entitled, The 50 Saddest Songs of All Time. After cruising it for a while yesterday, it had me in tears. There are some really, really sad songs. There is a Glenn Campbell song entitled, I'm Not Gonna Miss miss You. It was written after his diagnosis of Alzheimer's. It's admittedly selfish that the only good thing about his disease was it would keep him from missing his wife. How sad. Eric Clapton wrote a song about the death of his son called Tears in Heaven. In the song, he mournfully asked if his son will even know his name in heaven. And then there's R.E.M.'s gloomy tune, Everybody Hurts Sometimes. Everybody cries. Everything's wrong. From someone who knows, those are not peppy lyrics. These are all gut-wrenching, brutally sad songs. Oh, but at the top of the list, the saddest of all sad songs is a Hank Williams classic. I'm so lonesome, I could cry. Hank croons as only Hank can. I've never seen a night so long. When time goes crawling by, the moon just went behind the clouds to hide its face and cry. The silence of a falling star lights up a purple sky. And as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. All these songs, they're marinated in sadness. And it's true, all lives have their share of sadness. In our text this morning, though, the Apostle Paul, he talks about sorrow, but the gloom he sings about is a good kind of sadness. The expression, good grief, it isn't just the phrase Charlie Brown made famous, or a clever entry on a list of oxymorons, good grief. No, here in 2 Corinthians, Paul teaches us that there really is such a thing as good grief. In northern Chile, there is a strip of land between the Andes Mountains and the Pacific Ocean where the sun shines virtually all the time. Seldom does a cloud ever appear over this valley. This produces a brilliant sunrise each morning, a picturesque sunset every night you would think this area would be a paradise on earth. But the Atacama Desert is so sterile, it looks like the terrain on the planet Mars. The constant sunshine has only created a barren wilderness. Nothing grows there. And this is a lesson for us. For all bright days and perpetual sunshine is not what we need. A life without some clouds, without some rainy days, won't produce the growth and the fruitfulness we really desire. Sadness comes to us all, and it is our responsibility to transform it into good grief. This is what we learn how to do in this morning's text. Now, chapter 7, verse 2, opens by eavesdropping in on the running dialogue between Paul and the Corinthian church. Remember, what we call a book of the Bible was originally a letter, a personal correspondence. 
And in his letter, Paul has been defending himself before his critics. He has described the motive and the methods of his ministry. Mean, unfounded accusations were being hurled at him. He's now defending his sincerity, which is what he does again in verse 2. He writes, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. And this is what every pastor and Christian ministry should be able to say to its community. I've wronged no one. I've corrupted no one. I've cheated no one. I have wronged no one. I've treated everyone, church member and outsider alike, fairly and lovingly. It would be like me saying, at last year's Hallelujah Fest, I gave all the kids the same amount of candy that I gave my grandkids. Ooh. Well, maybe not. Think Paul would have given a grandpa exception? Actually, I remember once encouraging a friend's ex-wife. And my friend couldn't understand why I was being kind to this person who had inflicted on him so much hatred and spite. You know, people don't always realize that God calls a pastor to wrong no one. Even the person who's done the wrong. All Christians need to treat folks the way God treats us and show them that same magnanimous mercy. Paul also says, I have corrupted no one. This is why I don't sit in the bar section at the Texas Roadhouse. Even though you can see the football game a lot clearer from the bar section than you can from the regular section. It's something they got to work on. The reason I don't sit in the bar section at the Texas Roadhouse is that I don't want to see someone walk in and see Pastor Sandy in the bar and think it's okay to get hammered. I've pledged my life to win people to Jesus and help them be holy, to be set apart and dedicated to God. That's why I don't want to shoot my intentions in the foot by some cavalier conduct or by careless living. A pastor should forfeit his rights to encourage people in holiness. My goal is to be able to say, as Paul did, I have corrupted no one. And I have cheated no one. You see, for me, ministry is a sacred trust. God trusts me with his people. And you also trust me to be your pastor. I take that very seriously. Six years ago, our church started an extension campus in Winder. Several folks from Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain went along to help us launch the new church. I recall thanking one of the men for his involvement when he said to me, Sandy, the reason we're there is that we believe in you and your vision. You know, I was shocked by what he said. I was really taken back. Wasn't he there because God had called him? And I'm sure that was true. But his words reminded me that he trusted me as his pastor, that he looked to me for leadership. And this is the realization that sobers me every single day. I don't want to cheat you. You support me with your hard-earned money so that I can study and rightly divide God's word. Thus, I labor diligently in my preparations. You pay your pastors to manage the church funds. Thus, we seek wisdom and we try to make every penny count. You give so that we can disciple your family. That's why we want to be faithful to God and to the people that we serve. James 
and Brett and Anna and Matt and Stacy and everyone who's on our church staff, we want to be able to say, I have wronged no one, I have corrupted no one, I have cheated no one. Verse 3 tells us, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Now in calling on the Corinthians to open their hearts to him, to be honest with him, to stop accusing him behind his back, Paul wasn't trying to shame them. No, Paul wanted to renew his relationship with them. He wanted to build trust. The Corinthians had betrayed Paul. Even after he had yoked himself to them, he had, they had broken his heart. He loved them so much so that he was willing to die together or live together. He would die with them by sharing in their persecutions. Or he would live with them as they served the Lord. But his bond was permanent. Truly, these Corinthians were in his heart. And I think this is true of every faithful pastor. His people, his congregation are in his heart. It's more than a job. A good pastor has a genuine love for those he serves. And then Paul continues, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. You see, to prove his love for them, Paul tells the Corinthians how he had bragged on them among all the churches. He had told people they were a powerful church. They had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Ask the believers in Philippi or in Thessalonica or in Berea. If they were tired of hearing Paul gloat over the church at Corinth, they'd probably tell you, yes. Like a doting dad's favorite child, the Corinthians were all Paul wanted to talk about. He was on the verge of making the early church jealous. Paul was proud of the Corinthians. Yet all the while, they were criticizing and questioning him. He was a pastor who cared for his flock, but his fickle sheep, they were just bleeding about their pastor. It was a bad scene. At the writing of this letter, Paul was in the city of Philippi, and he was bummed out over the Corinthians. He was worried over the spiritual welfare of this church. But things changed with the arrival of his assistant, Titus, Paul tells us. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. Inside were fears. And isn't it a bit sobering to hear the fearless Apostle Paul admit to some fear and trepidation. But at times, even brave apostles can become afraid. Paul was human like the rest of us. He was made of clay just like you and me. You know, it's been said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to trust God in the midst of fear. Now, I don't know if Paul feared what I fear. I doubt if he was ever afraid of holding a church meeting and nobody showing up. I fear that. Or that he was afraid of the offerings dipping so that he couldn't pay his staff. Or that the government might eventually come and take away his rights and throw him in jail. Paul seemed to handle all of those issues as a matter of course. Paul is saying, on a physical level, I'm still fighting. It's on an emotional level 
that I get fearful. I think Paul feared what would happen to the faith of his converts. Would they continue to hold fast to the truth? He feared false teachers entering the fold and devouring the sheep. Paul says when he arrived in Macedonia, that is in Philippi, there were immediate demands on his time. He kept long hours. Our body had no rest. He was troubled on every side. In other words, his life was flooded with problems. And I think every pastor has weeks just like that. I can't overemphasize the stress ministry produces when you consider it a sacred trust. When souls are at stake, when the gospel is on the line, it ups the ante. All this depressed Paul when he first arrived in Philippi. You know, depression has been labeled the common cold of the soul. For sooner or later, most people catch it. And I think people in ministry are especially vulnerable. Paul doesn't identify it here, but you can be sure spiritual warfare was another reason for his despair. 17th century English pastor John Donay, he referred to his own, frequent, his own frequent feelings of gloom as, and I quote, the damp of hell, or literally the dew of hell. Some days, he just woke up behind the eight ball. He just felt this sullen, melancholy mood. You know, they say the great reformer Martin Luther was also subject to fits of depression so great he would hide for days. His family would remove all sharp objects from his reach. Once his wife, Katerina, she dressed in clothes that she normally wore to the funerals. Luther asked her who died. She said, the way you're acting, I thought God did. Paul, too, endured some tough emotional, emotional patches. But notice what God used to deliver Paul, verse 6. Nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. After Titus had delivered the letter to the Corinthians, he now returns, and God uses the visit and presence of a friend to lift Paul's spirits. Titus came with a good report and news of the Corinthians' repentance, and it encouraged Paul. I love the title that Paul gives to God here in verse 6. God who comforts the downcast. Did you know that's the God you serve? You know, the term downcast was used by shepherds. Whenever a plump sheep tumbled over on its back and couldn't right itself on its own, it was called downcast. It was really a hopeless predicament. And Paul had become so distressed, he didn't think he could right himself in his own power. He'd done such a hole for himself, such a deep hole, that he didn't think he could get out on his own. And so, God sent a friend. Once there was a man, he fell in a hole. The sides were so steep, he couldn't get out. A doctor walked by. And the man shouted, hey, can you help me get out of this hole? The doctor wrote him a prescription, threw it down in a hole. Shortly thereafter, a priest walked by. And the man shouted, can you help me get out of this hole? The priest wrote down a prayer on a piece of paper and threw it in a hole. Finally, a friend walks by. The man shouts, hey, Joe, it's me. Can you get me out of this hole? All of a sudden, Joe jumps down in a hole with his friend. 
The stranded man is stunned. He said, why did you do that? Are you stupid? Now we're both down here. That's when Joe tells him, yeah, but I've been down here before, and I know the way out. And this is the beauty of a friend. He doesn't just mind joining you in the hole. He's been in a few holes himself, and he knows the way out when you're not seeing so clearly. Often God washes and bandages our wounds. He restores us to hope and proper perspective. He gets us back on our feet through the help and presence of a friend. And if you're that friend, the next time God puts a person on your heart, don't you ignore it. Make that call. Pay that visit. Shoot off that email. Who knows if God wants to use you in your friend's life like he did Titus in Paul's. Now Paul tells us in verse 7 why he was so encouraged by Titus's visit. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now remember, 1 Corinthians was a strong rebuke. Paul confronted the Corinthians over their divisiveness and over their carnality. And apparently many of the Corinthians had repented. They had taken heed to Paul's instructions. There is some debate as to whether the Corinthians respond here to 1 Corinthians or to another severe letter that Paul mentions back in chapter 2 verse 4. I don't think it matters. The point is, is that the Corinthians had humbled themselves. They had received Paul's correction and they had repented and now Titus was returning with the news. He says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now as a child, whenever I was naughty, probably not often, but whenever I was naughty, my father would resort to what is today a very politically incorrect form of punishment. He would lay me over the bed, he'd pull off his belt, and he'd whip my rear end till it stung. By the way, it didn't injure me. I'm still okay. As a matter of fact, God prepared me by giving me a little extra padding back there. And it certainly didn't stunt my self-esteem. I think that's my biggest problem. Actually, it showed me that I was loved enough to be held accountable, which really boosted my self-esteem. I knew someone cared. As a matter of fact, this all worked so well I did on my kids. But just before my dad laid the board of education to the seat of learning and gave me a spanking, he would always say the same thing. Sandy, this hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. And guess what? I never believed him. Not once did I ever believe him. Not until I became a parent. And now I know it's true. It is an agonizing ordeal to discipline someone that you love. This is what Paul felt when he wrote his letter. Nobody likes it when their sin gets exposed. Nobody relishes a reprimand. A good rebuke like a spanking, it stings. It might even make you angry at first. You might try to dodge it with excuses or even recoil by criticizing the rebuker. 
I'm sure this is what some of the Corinthians had done. Not everyone received Paul's correction. And the only thing more excruciating than receiving a rebuke is to be the one that administers that rebuke. See, Paul had taken a big risk in writing this letter. What if the Corinthians turned on him completely? What if he, they pushed him further away? What if they shut Paul out of their lives? And aren't these the same reasons that we use when we're reluctant to speak hard truths to people we love? Oh, if I tell my adult child I don't approve of what he's doing, he might not let me see my grandkids. Or if I tell my boss that I don't agree, my job might get tougher. Or if I tell a friend he's sinning and he needs to repent, I might lose that friend. See, Paul had the same concerns before he wrote to the Corinthians, but he sent the letter. He had the courage to push sin. He didn't worry about being liked. He didn't allow the truth to be held hostage to a friendship. You see, true friends aren't afraid of the truth. They speak the truth in love. This was Paul's approach to his friends. And this is why Christian ministry isn't a popularity contest. Let me repeat. Ministry is a sacred trust. As ambassadors of Christ, our primary interest is the glory of God and the spiritual health of the people we love, not just that they would like us and feel good about us. Hebrews 12 teaches us that a parent who refuses to discipline their child really doesn't love that child since they're withholding from the child what's going to cause them to mature. Paul loved the Corinthians enough to hold them accountable for their sin. He was willing to risk his friendship with them to help salvage their fellowship with God. Real brothers and sisters love each other that way. Be glad you have pastors willing to do the same. And then Paul continues, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. This was good grief. This was a godly sorrow that leads a person to repentance. The Corinthians were sad for a season, but after the sting of the spanking subsided, Paul's rebuke accomplished its intended purpose. Paul's truth and love led them to repentance. Verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Note there are two types of sorrow over sin. There is a godly sorrow, and then there is a worldly sorrow. Reminds me of the Catholic fellow who worked at a lumberyard. He was tormented by a haunting secret. Once he was at confession, and he admitted to the priest that he'd been stealing lumber from his employer. The priest asked him, he said, man, how much? The man said, well, enough wood to build a house for me, a house for my son, a house for my two daughters. Even a small cottage up at the lake? I mean, the priest was appalled. He said, this is a serious offense. I'll have to think of a severe penance. Have you ever thought of doing a retreat? 
The fellow got excited. No, but if you can get me the plans, I can get the lumber. (laughs) That's not good grief. That's not godly sorrow. That's more a worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is being sorry you got caught. It's being regretful that you're being punished or embarrassed over your personal failure or remorse over what could have happened but didn't. Worldly sorrow stops short of real change. It stops short of the desire to do it differently. Worldly sorrow causes crocodile tears. It produces a pout, but no real desire for change. You see, bad grief is self-centered. It's self-pity. It's a woe-is-me kind of sorrow. In her book, The Art of the Public Grovel, Author Susan Bauer, she evaluates the public confessions of fallen politicians and sports figures and business moguls. She makes a distinction between an apology and a confession. She writes, An apology is an expression of regret. I am sorry. A confession is an admission of fault. I am sorry because I did wrong. I sinned. And how true this is. You can regret the outcome of your actions without ever admitting that those actions were in any way wrong. Whereas good grief or godly sorrow is God-directed and God-honoring. You're sorry you broke God's heart. You're sorry you thumbed your nose at His authority. Not only are you willing to concede the outcome of your actions was harmful, But you'll go further. You'll label them as sinful. Godly sorrow feels guilt, not just regret. It goes to prove that despite our culture, what our culture says today, guilt can be good. Godly sorrow accepts the consequences of my actions. It doesn't buck or resent the proper punishment. Good grief seeks not only forgiveness, but the opportunity and the power to change. In a word, godly sorrow yields repentance. And this is what is missing in today's Christianity. Most churches advance a faith void of repentance. Prayer is now therapy. It's just a way for you to feel better. Faith is needed to overcome obstacles and achieve your success. A relationship with Jesus will help you obtain your goals. It's all about what Jesus can do for you. That's not repentance. Repent means to turn. Do an about face. Stop going in a selfish direction and follow Jesus. Oh, certainly at times following Jesus makes me feel better. But my feelings aren't the ultimate goal. Christianity is me living under the authority of Jesus rather than living according to my whims and wisdom. Paul describes godly sorrow as follows. Verse 11. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Here Paul mentions the fruits of repentance. The great 18th century evangelist George Whitfield. He was careful not to label converts legitimate 
without waiting to see evidence of their repentance. He put it like this, So many blossoms which March winds blow away that I cannot believe are converts until I see their fruit. If you've ever wanted to discern if you or if another person were truly repentant, you can use Paul's checklist here. Is there now a diligence in you to get up and to do the right thing? Or are you simply content to sulk in your sorrow and in your regret? Am I determined to rebuild my reputation and clear my record or just start over somewhere where no one knows me? Is there hatred of sin and the damage it's caused or just a host of excuses for why I had no other choice? Is there a fear of God in what he thinks of sin, my sin? Is there a vehement desire to do whatever it takes to overcome the sin in my life and not be a repeater? Have I swapped the zeal that I once had for my sin with a new passion for God and for the things of God? And is there a longing to make things right, to vindicate myself and repair the damage I've done? Or is my only concern how I can just get all this behind me? See, not all sorrow is created equal. We need good grief. In 1999, John Jefferson, he robbed a Krispy Kreme donut. He was after drug money. But Jefferson's sin haunted him. He moved from Tennessee to Kansas, thinking that a change of scenery would help him start fresh. But he couldn't shake his guilty conscience. Finally, Jefferson decided to confess. He called the police in Tennessee. Later, John told a reporter, I couldn't take it anymore. I was sick and tired of the way I was living. I didn't want to die in a crack house. He served six years in prison. But John Jefferson still wasn't done with repentance. For when he finally got out of prison, he returned to the Christmas Krispy Kreme that he had robbed, and he repaid them the money that he'd stolen. It was only $400, but afterwards he said, I felt like a million bucks when I walked out of that place. It's a good grief that leads to this kind of repentance. Once there was a Sunday school teacher who asked the kids, can you tell me what you have to do to gain God's forgiveness? One little boy answered, first you have to sin. Sadly, I know some adults with the same attitude. They seem to sin to be forgiven, and then they're forgiven so they can sin again. There's no true repentance. There's no desire to break the cycle. Either they're enjoying their sin or they're crying for forgiveness, but there's no godly sorrow. Do you really want to overcome what's dragging you down? Don't be content. Seek a genuine repentance. I read an article that studied the human reaction when a fire alarm goes off. Instead of exiting the building, most of us stand around. We we need other clues. And we don't trust emergency exits. We usually opt for the familiar route. A psychologist responds to these findings by saying, I can't say it surprises me. We humans resist change, committing ourselves to a small change, even one that's unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening 
than ignoring a dangerous situation. And sadly, this is true even when facing the fires of hell. People tend to avoid change, even resist change. Always remember, the measure of a Christian is not whether they sin, but whether or not they repent. You see, without real repentance, that is the willingness to change, there can be no real forgiveness. It's not that we can change ourselves. We can't. We need Jesus to change us. But we have to provide him the willingness. This is what Esau discovered. You remember Esau He experienced deep regret, but not the willingness to live his life differently. Hebrews 12 verse 17 says of Esau, He found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. A flood of tears is no substitute for a repentant heart. Remember also Judas Iscariot. He felt condemned. He was sorry he betrayed Jesus. He was so remorseful he tried to return the 30 pieces of silver. But Judas's sorrow never caused him to face up to what he'd done. Rather than seek God's forgiveness and restoration, Judas sulked off in his worldly sorrow and tried to duck the consequences of his actions by killing himself. Verse 12 tells us, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, Paul's primary goal in writing his previous letter and in rebuking the Corinthians wasn't his concern for the perpetrator or even for the victim. It was for the church's sake. He says, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. You remember the situation that had prompted Paul's rebuke. A man was living in an incestuous relationship with his father's wife. Paul had exhorted the church to call this couple to repentance. But his greater beef was with the church's tolerance. For they were so proud of the fact that they had been non-judgmental toward these people in their church. Paul was so clear. The tolerance of blatant sin is no virtue. The couple should repent or get the boot. A church can no more play host to an unrepentant sinner than the human body can tolerate a cancer. Ignore sin. Be soft on sin and it will destroy the church. Paul confronted the rebellious couple out of love for them, but he also loved the church. You see, sometimes it takes making people sorrowful to bring them joy in the end. Good grief can be a really good thing. Paul wraps up the chapter with remarks about Titus. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Titus was not only a blessing to Paul, but after his visit with the Corinthians, they had been a blessing to Titus. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. The Corinthians had lived up to Paul's confidence in them. He thanks them for his kindness to Titus, their kindness to Titus, and he applauds them for receiving his rebuke with a godly sorrow. 
Calvin Miller once wrote, Crying is common in this world. Laughter is here and there, but by and large, weeping predominates. With maturity, the sound and reason for our crying changes, but never does it stop. All infants do it everywhere, even in public. By adulthood, most crying is done alone and in the dark. Weeping for babies is a sign of health and evidence that we are alive. Isn't that chilling? Not laughter, but tears are the sound of life. And this is true, my friends, of spiritual life. Crying over my rebellion against God, feeling the pain of hurts I've caused, straining to do that hard but right thing, sadness for my own selfishness, the grind of humbling my pride. It's all worth the tears if it transforms a life. There is a good grief. It's a sorrow that results not only in a change of belief, but in a change of behavior. It's been said, if we put off repentance another day, we have a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Good grief. Why don't you just get right with Jesus today? 